Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. and how they have this, this single gene effect called the tau gene and how it affects brain development specifically affects the SCN, the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Um, you have one of those too and yours pulses as well. It is your circadian clock. It's the one that affects when you wake up, when you go to sleep, that kind of thing. Um, the thing that's adjusted, it has to be adjusted and that's why you end up with jet lag. Okay? Um, there are probably cognitive effects in these animals. Uh, wouldn't be surprising. Other cognitive effects besides just the timing ability, uh, actually, because knowing keep, keep track of time is a pretty important part of, of learning and memory. Actually, so that's pretty cool because it's again that's a single gene affecting brain development, and it actually affects pretty complicated behavior, which is circadian timing. Um, Typically, what people have done to look at genetic effects on nervous systems and genetic effects on behavior is they've used fruit flies, Drosophila. These are based, they're there, there's one. They're, they're way smaller than that. That's not actual size. Um, they're basically the white rat of genetics. I mean, these are the things that have been used for years. There's a few reasons for this. You guys probably have taken genetics know about this, that it's actually not that hard to screw with your genome. But the nice thing you can do is you can mark it with a color. So you end up saying, okay, we, these are the animals that came out having this mutation, and they're also red rather than black or something. And the neat thing you can actually do is you can make up these genetic mosaics where you get part of the animal has one genome and part of the animal has another genome and it's coded by looking at it and saying, oh, that part's red, that part's black. That means that part has this gene and that part has or that this allele and this part has that allele, which is pretty cool. It's a technique actually that was developed by a few people, one of them notably uh, uh, Canadian hippie David Suzuki, also quite a good geneticist. Then he went all crazy and wanted us all to have electric cars and stuff. But someone, you know, I was kidding. <laughs> okay, here's some of my, these are, these are some of my favorite learning mutants in Drosophila. I know you have yours, but uh, these are mine. Uh, dunce. This is a stupid fruit fly. Now, you might think, aren't all fruit flies a little slow? Well, perhaps. How do you test this? What you do is you take fruit flies and you put them in a, in a test tube and you put a little uh, shock prod in it, like a little piece of metal that's electrified. Most of your flies learn pretty quickly that when they land on the little kid, it's not so hard that it's still so much current that it fries them like a bug light. That would ruin the experiment. 
because nobody's going to learn anything because they'll all be dead. Hard to learn when you're dead. It's way hard. But what happens is they learn very quickly. Most fruit flies are standard fruit fly. They get a little zap and it's like, I'm not landing there now. The dunce ones, they land on it and they just never learn. They're flying around in this little test tube but they land on a little shot. They go, wow! And they fly around and go, I wonder if it's actually probably land out here. It's probably pretty good there. Ow! <laughs> and they go back. And the other ones are laughing. They laugh at them and they say, you idiot, you're a dunce. And that's what it's about. It's not really. <laughs> but Genesis, baby Genesis very often named uh, alleles and genes uh, in clever fashions, let's say that. Uh, amnesia. There's another one. Same procedure, except these ones learn for 15 seconds and then forget. So they land, land once, ow! And then they like, okay, well, I shouldn't fly, I shouldn't land there. Glad I had that one experience, though. Because, you know, now I won't, what was I, I probably should go see what that's all about. I've probably land on that. Ow! So 15 seconds. So they forget. Stuck. This is one of my, this is an interesting one. Because stuck is when, see, when a mommy fly and a daddy fly really like each other, they mate. And if they have, if the male has this gene, he, 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 he can't get off her. He gets stuck. He's stuck. Then there's this one, coitus interruptus, which obviously he, he, he pulls out too early, basically. <laughs> The number of things I'm editing out right now, I'm not saying. <laughs> but basically, what happens is he doesn't actually ejaculate the female. And again, I'll just leave that. You can write your own jokes. <laughs> uh, bang sensitive, which sounds like it's about sex, but it's not. Um, bang sensitive, it's interesting. You take fruit flies, you put them in a test tube. And give it a little, you get the test tube. Um, nothing happens typically, except if they have the bang-sensitive mutation, it knocks them out. <laughs> it's like uh, phasers on stun. They get knocked out and they wake up a while later. See, we have to breed flies like that and let them out into the wild, because I want flies like that. You know, because you miss flies when you try to hit them. But if you get near them, they got to go, oh. then, you, then you got it. And you tell them about it. That'll teach them. Breeding our fruit. Now, this one's actually pretty cool, PER. PER stands for periodicity, which means it's about time. Now, what this does, this screws up all kinds of things, the, 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 the timing of all kinds of behaviors. Single gene. So you end up with behaviors, for example, like mating. When they do a mating dance with each other, okay, the male and female, this screws up how long they stand at each component. Okay? This screws up the order in which they do some of the parts of the mating dance. Because again, that's a timing thing. This screws up their circadian rhythm. Oh, it screws up their circadian rhythm, does it? I wonder if it's anything like the tau gene in the hamster. And in fact, if you do, if you compare the sequence of the tau gene and the per gene, and you, they, they hybridize 99%. They're 99% the same order of base pairs. 
if indeed you compare this to the gene in slime mold, which isn't even an animal, it's almost too boring for Brandon. It's a slime mold. Got to be a joke there, I can make, but it's taking me too long to write it up here. So, slime molds, like everything else in this plant, have a rhythm. Okay, so the rhythm is that they grow uh, more at night than in the day. So they have a circadian rhythm. And when you take that gene, it also hybridizes 99% with per and with tau. It is something, knowing how, knowing how to somehow respond to the Earth's axis and how the Earth spins out these days and nights is obviously pretty important and it's going to have to be quite advantageous evolutionarily. And obviously, this, and it's basically, this is the same gene. That's the cool thing. You hybridize 99%, you basically have the same damn gene. Across that much evolutionary time, it's pretty incredible. So what that says, what that says is that these same animal, the same, these are not slime molds, same things are like this. This this gene itself has been showed up a very, very, very long time ago, and I think that's pretty neat. So it can actually give us a little hint about evolution, which is pretty cool. Questions about that stuff? So what does all this mean? Um, what does a gene for behavior mean? Well, it means that we have behavioral differences that are related to or caused by genetic differences. You've got to understand, though, that that doesn't mean that there isn't an environmental effect. And I know that that kind of bothers some people. But there's always interaction. Always interaction. Right? But we have one follow from the other. It doesn't mean that a complex behavioral sequence is caused by a single gene. It could mean that, but it doesn't have to. Okay? Or something as complicated as, 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 as uh, human personality traits. Right? Or something as complicated as human intelligence, which you could argue is a personality trait. <coughs> but it's amazing how many things are when we look at the sort of human behavioral genetics and we take a look at human behaviors that we're not even aware we have and how they relate to genetics. And for example, if you compare friends with each other compared to non-friends, the friends are more likely to have the same blood type than the non-friends. Now, how is that even, do you go, when you first meet somebody, <laughs> You say, what kind of movies do you like? What kind of beer do you like to drink? And what's your blood type? <laughs> it doesn't come up, does it? Right? Yet somehow we're able to detect this. Now, it's probably because it's related to a whole bunch of other things. It's probably not that we have a blood type detection gene. I find that very hard to believe. But it's going to be related to a whole bunch of other behavioral characteristics, I imagine, that would... And, you know, and like attracts like, right? Be it for mating or be it just for friendship, right? Like attracts like. Opposites don't attract. That's a crock of shit. That's stuff they tell you on TV. Well, people that don't know what they're talking about on TV. There must be somebody on TV, I don't know, saying the right thing. A lot of channels now. 
Um, we're probably doing this to some people. That said, it's interesting that <clears throat> when you have people smell the sweat of their friends versus their non-friends, they prefer the smell of their friends' armpits. <laughs> how do you test that? Especially biology students. They're like, how do you, what is psychology? It's very odd, I think. Well, what you do actually is you get people to wear a, a clean white t shirt that's not bleached or anything, and you have not wear deodorant, you have to work it for an hour. Okay? Uh, and people sweat them. And then you cut the armpits out, put them in a, in a test tube, and you tap it. And then you have people sew and say, which ones rate these unpleasantness? And then people tend to rate their friends' armpit smell more pleasantly than they rate their non friends. It's interesting as well, by the way, that we're also able to detect beauty, like facial attractiveness, by armpit smoke. It's true. It's worked on my aunt's story at the Moore University of Newfoundland. How the hell is that happening? Right? Well, there's all kinds of theories. Take evolutionary psychology in a couple of years when it's offered again. We talk about this. The point is... This needn't be a single gene. It actually could be. There's a whole theory about how that works that that might be a single gene or a single gene complex. But it also doesn't have to be. It could be, for example, that you just it's these things are correlated with other behavioral traits. You're more likely to have the same area of earlobe compared to the area of your whole ear than you uh, with a friend than with a non-friend. There's all kinds of things we detect about each other we're not aware of. And again, you know, you'll meet somebody in a bar. Can I just look at your earlobe to smell your armpits for a second? I just want to make sure. Right. Well, yeah, I don't think I want to hang out with you. I don't enjoy your armpit smell. You know, it's a strange thing to say. Now, just because something has a genetic basis, though, doesn't make it unchangeable. And this is something that's lost on a lot of people that are kind of slow. I'm sorry, on people that don't understand things, that are simplistic. There are behaviors, there are characteristics that are completely 100% heritable. Right? You probably have heard of PKU, right? Inability to digest uh, phenylalanine, which is a amino acid, right? Okay. That would be bad, because it used to be the number one cause of mental retardation in the Western world. Because what happens is it doesn't get broken down, and then you end up with over-concentration of it, serious brain damage used to be the number one cause of mental retardation. Now what happens is, when your kid's born, they do a blood test. And there's a reason you have to, you have to be in the hospital for 24 hours. In fact, they'll, they'll often, by law, they'll say, okay, you can go home right now if you want, but you have to be back in 24 hours for your kid's blood test. And what they do is they take the kid and they poke the, the, the heel with a, with, a, with a pin and draw a little, little blood. And you feel horrible. Because what's your first kid? Second was like, yeah, I know they're going to poke the heel. It's going to bleed, whatever. I just want to go home. First one is kind of disturbing. And they do a blood test. And in fact, if, they, if it comes out that your kid's got PKU, you're told, here, here are the following foods your kid can't eat ever. Or maybe your kid can eat him past pu start eating him past puberty. There's, there's some debate on that now. 
But now that's something, and that's a single gene. That's a single gene. And it affects brain development. But guess what? If you don't eat those foods that have fetal alanine in them, um, you don't end up with a normal IQ, mean of 100 standard deviation 15. If you eat those foods, you end up being profoundly retarded. It's completely inheritable and completely changeable. So just because you say something's heritable and genetic doesn't mean it can't be changed. It's not biological determinism. It's not these, you know what you're doing? You're just trying to apologize for the misogynist class structure. No, I'm not. When did I say that? I never once said that. I'm arguing with, with a character I've developed, if you notice, by the way. So, the thing is, though you hear that a lot from people that don't understand behavior genetics, they say, you know, well, you're just trying to say things are supposed to be. There's nothing about supposed to be anyway. It's a naturalistic fallacy. Just because something's natural doesn't make it good or bad. It just is. Right? That's like when people say, yeah, I won't, I won't, I won't do acid, man. I'll only do mushrooms because they're natural. <laughs> I often say to people like that, would you like to eat some crap? Because that's natural. Just have some poop. <laughs> it's very natural. Uh, it sounds like I'm arguing for taking acid, which I'm not. <laughs> I argue against anything that someone with grade 7 bench skills can make themselves. Uh, yeah. Sort of my rule. Can you make this recreational drug yourself at the age of 12? Yes? Then I don't want any. <laughs> I am the danger. <laughs> so you got that. That's good. So you got to remember something. Genotype is not phenotype. And this is something people get very frightened about. When they, when they, the more we learn about genetics, behavior genetics, they say, oh, we're going to find out now about people's proclivities, about who people are, effects they're going to have, and then we're going to say that this person can't have this job. Gattaca, you know that movie? That whole society is based on a, on, a, on, a, on a mistake, right? Because people can, just because something's genetic doesn't mean it's unchangeable. And that movie is based on the, the idea that people get tested and they say, oh, you're going to do this for a living. It's a very good movie. All right, questions about this stuff? You good? Communication. So basically, how neurons communicate uh, inside the neuron, how the neuron works, and then outside, how they communicate with each other. Uh, that's when we talk about neurotransmission. Um, it was pretty clear early on that electricity played a role, that there was something electrical going on in the nervous system. Early on, meaning, you know, 16, 17, 1800s kind of thing. And more like 18, 19, 17, 18, 19. Um, Galvani, who uh, you may have heard of the galvanic skin, skin response, right? Which is GSR, which is used in uh, uh, polygraphs, right? So that's special skin conductance. Um, then you get subtle changes in skin conductance from the sweat, just a little bit better. Same guy. So what Galvani did, and I got a picture of this that 
well, it's not a photo, obviously, but it's a drawing that Galvani made that I'll show you in a sec. What Galvani did is he had these frogs hooked up, and he had like, wires on their muscles. And then he had that like, little, for lack of a better word, like lightning rod. And when you had a lightning storm, where you had a lot of static electricity in the air, the legs would twitch. And he figured at this point, well, obviously, this is, it's moving because electricity makes the muscles contract. Um, later on, a couple of Germans, Fritsch and Hitzig, um, stimulated the cortex of various animals with electricity. Uh, so they'd open up the animal's head and zap it, and they'd get little twitches, they'd get moving. Now they, they didn't know where they were zapping, so they would be all over the place. And they'd get all kinds of movement. Now here we're talking dogs, cats, monkeys. It seems to me this is back likely when science was all done in giant evil castles. <laughs> Uh, later on, in, I think this is Columbus, Ohio, I think is where this was. Uh, Dar- uh, Bar- Bartholo had this patient. He was an MD. And he had this patient, Mary Rafferty. Now, Mary Rafferty had this big lesion like tumor like thing on her head. Now, you got to remember this is the 1800s. So he removes it. You know, what are you going to do? So she lives. Now, the problem is, she's got an exposed brain in it. Her brain's exposed. Like, it's not like you put anything there. Perhaps a jaunty beret, but <laughs> there was nothing put there. So it's like, put the, put her brain out in the air. So she's got enough problems. And Bartholo's like, you know what you should do? You should come back, and I should probably zap parts of your brain. <laughs> Don't you think that'd be kind of awesome? <laughs> she's like, well, I don't know. I... I, I I'm not sure my judgment isn't impaired. Have you noticed my brain is exposed to the air? <laughs> so Barthelot does this. He's giving her little zaps, and she's got a little movement. She's uh, experienced things, so she smells, sounds. Because he's just digging in there and sapping away. And in, in a way, we can laugh at it today, because, you know, it wasn't us, and it's a long time ago. <laughs> but that's not horribly ethical. I'm just saying now, you might think, oh, yeah, but in the 1800s, especially in Columbus, Ohio, and I don't know what that last bit meant, but <laughs> I threw that in. Over the Blue Jack. They should have named their team the Rafferties. They would have all had holes in their helmets. <laughs> no one would have got the joke. Still no one would go to the games. It didn't matter. Um, but... You would think maybe, well, that was sort of common. Doctors abuse patients, maybe more, you know, than they do now. People didn't like this very much. The American Medical Association basically said, we're kicking you out of town. You can't be a doctor anymore. This is the 1800s, so let's give the AMA some credit. Uh, That said, uh, he was hired by a couple of major universities and got teaching positions. So, you know... 
You can zap people's brains all you want. You still get a university job. You can't be an MD anymore. Interestingly, 50, 60 years later, psychologist John Watson sleeps with his research assistant and he's fired by Johns Hopkins. So you can't sleep with anybody. Go into people's brains all you want. That's not a big deal. Really strange. But the nice thing is, if there's going to be a nice thing about this, is he finds the same thing with, with, with humans as with non-humans you expect. Makes me wonder what the hell he was thinking. You know. Well, I better make sure that Fritz and Hitzig were correct. I'll try it with a human. <laughs> a little odd to me. Now, many of you may have seen this. Dr. Wilder Penfield, I think I mentioned. Maybe not. Penfield was... Um, Canadian uh, neurosurgeon, Montreal Neurological Institute. I know I've mentioned that place. Uh, it's on Rue Dr. Penfield in Montreal. I mean, he's an important guy. He's been on a stand. That's kind of cool. And what Penfield would do, okay, he opened people's heads up on purpose. He wasn't like Bartholo. Because he was usually looking for where, where, where seizures were coming from. And seizures often mean tumors. And usually when people would have tumor, uh, seizures, I'm sorry, that was coming from a tumor, they would have some kind of experience before they had the seizure. Okay? So they maybe would, and there's a classic sort of heritage moment, uh, you know those commercials that are from the government that, 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 that they couldn't sell any other commercial time, so they put that on? Dave? Yeah? Is that true for all seizures? No. Okay. No. If there's ones that, that, that come from a certain... Usually, if the seizure's coming from a tumor, not all seizures do the one. Um, and they don't always still produce the same experience every time. Um, but it's a nice marker if someone has this. Now, of course, what do we do today? We put it in an MRI. And we say, oh, look, there's the tumor. It's easy. When it's 1912, you don't have an MRI. You may, you may have been imagining it. Wouldn't it be cool if we had a tube we could put people in? And then we could look, but they, you know that's all they got. So what he would, what Penfield would do, he would know roughly where it might be. Look at the seizure. Is it on the left or the right side of the brain? He would then maybe have an idea from the experience that people have. So if it's something about smell, maybe it's near the olfactory bone. Okay. So there's the classic heritage moment there where the woman says, "Doctor Penfield, I smell burnt toast," <laughs> and she would always smell something burning before she had a seizure. That's the story in the heritage moment. And what he would do is he'd go in, he'd say, okay, that's got to be, I know roughly where olfactory bulb is, and he'd just go right down there, just drill down, that's wrong choice of words, uh, poke with an electrode until he would create the same sensation or the same movement or something like that, and very rarely even the same memories, unless he would have memories. And then... If he did that, and the person would actually experience it, and of course you got to understand that when you're under, when you get brain surgery, you're almost always awake. Because putting you under actually is always a little bit dangerous, right? There's always a chance you don't wake up. Uh, and oftentimes, when they're doing brain stuff, they want to make sure that they're not. Everybody's wired roughly the same, but you don't want to get something really important. So you want to see reactions from people. So this is what happens to this day, actually. To this day. They give you a local and they saw your head open. Now you are so freaking sedated. Like, you are so full of, like, feet of barbitol. 
that it's like you're so drunk, it's like it feels like somebody's coming into my head. That's weird. Go in, or smells burnt toast. Is there a way? That's that's smell burnt toast. That's drunk burnt toast lady. One of my new characters I'm developing. And you'd say, okay, now I know exactly what the seizure is, I'll go in again. Again, today we use an MRI. We find it in an hour, right? But what Penfield also did is when he had the brain open, he was taking notes, of course. So he'd be poking around trying to find places. Sometimes he'd, he'd, a memory would, would show up or an experience or movement, doing this with electricity. So this all sort of falls together that elect- electrical impulses are really important. Questions about that? Okay, by the way, there's Galvani's uh, frog setup. Which he, this is a drawing of his, so that's kind of cool. So here you go, he's got the lightning rod here, the frog's here. And the lightning happens, the frog moves a bit, and then it wakes up, it puts on a top hat, and it says, hello, my baby, hello, my darling. <laughs> it's good that people still have seen that cartoon. <laughs> Doesn't he wake up, like, he puts it away like a time capsule, and it's like, it's 2013 or something, and we all have laser guns and flying cars. And they didn't get that right, then again, it's hard to take... I don't think they were trying to be serious. They had a singing frog in the, in the show. <laughs> so, it's kind of cool, though. Again, see, science done in an evil castle. <laughs> if it was Assassin's Creed, you could hide in here and you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be notable. <laughs> Slide down here. So, that's kind of cool. I started throwing throw that in there. Okay. Eventually, we figure out that it's all. So those are the sort of cases. I got people like um, one of the first people ever do this. He hardly ever gets any credit. Is and I'm going to forget his first name, so I'm going to commit the same sin. Uh, I think it's Richard Caton, Scottish. So Richard Caton is a Scot. He opened up some heads of some dogs and some monkeys. And he zapped them with electricity. Measure the electricity. But well, zapping, but also measure it. In fact, look, it's making the needles move. I'm assuming that's how we talk. I have no idea. Perhaps he was an immigrant to another country and he just lived in Scotland. That's possible. I mean, it's possible. Just saying. Um, one of the first people that sort of... He presents this, by the way, to the uh, Royal Society of Scotland and... Like 1920 or something. And nobody cares. <coughs> right? They're all like, I don't have any more papers about haggis and scotch. <laughs> the stuff about brains is not it. Your brains look tasty, they're great, you know, funny. Um, <laughs> Scottish food, so right, good. Um, this is ignored for a long time. Helmholtz comes along actually, actually and, and Helmholtz gets a lot of the credit. Uh, he was one of the first people that measured the speed of, an, of nervous transmission. And people at the time thought it was instantaneous, and he was the guy. He came around about 28 meters per second. We now know it's about 10. But that's still pretty good, you know. And, and in fact, he gives credit when he writes his stuff up. 
to this guy Caton, and he says, you know, somebody did this along like 40 years ago, and no one cared. A Hodgkin, Hodgkin's disease, and uh, Huxley actually, with using um, giant axons, axons from giant squid. That's already cool. Why do you use those? Because uh, you don't really even need a microscope. They're like that long. Yeah, you need a microphone. Yeah, you basically see. Them. Look up your electrodes. Now, what they eventually did is they came up with a series of differential equations, which we're not going to get into that, don't worry. So, it's calculus that actually determined the size of, of, of the resting potential, and they modeled action potentials using calculus. Pretty cool. So these microelectrodes and, and oscilloscopes, right? Which um, this wasn't until the 40s really that people could do this kind of work. They did this in the 50s. They won the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine, I think, in the early 50s. Early to mid 50s, I think. Might have been in the early 60s. But they used these oscilloscopes and, and uh, electrodes. They figured out it was minus 70 millivolts. And, right. and the neat thing is, it's minus 70 in a giant squid neuron, and it's minus 70 in the ones in your head, too. Neuron is a neuron is a neuron is a neuron. Right? So that's kind of cool. We're all connected, man. <laughs> so this allows us today, we can use things like. EEGs. Nope. So an electroencephalogram. And what, what an EEG does is it put it on your head, right? And they just measure changes in, in skin conductance. But what that's doing is that's going to be affected by uh, changes in electrical potentials of parts of your brain. All right. Questions about that little history there? Okay, so a neuron has a resting potential. So this is when it's not firing. Neurons are on or off. There's something called the all or none law, which says that, which basically just says that neurons either fire or they don't. They don't kind of fire. Neurons are digital. Okay, they aren't analog, they're digital. And that's about negative 70 millivolts per neuron. At any given time, there's probably enough current in a human brain to run a major household appliance. That said, I don't know how you look that up. <laughs> you know, but you could run like a, 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 a fridge, no problem. What this does is it selectively allows certain ions in. Okay, now some of you don't know what an ion is because you aren't biology students, so you've never taken chemistry, or you did and you forgot it. So this is telling you what an ion is. It's really easy. So there's, there's like some atoms will take on an extra electron 
and they get, yeah, okay, let's let me get even back up more. Atoms have like protons, right, in the nucleus, and let's forget about the neutrons. Let's just pretend they only have protons. Or protons. Or photons. <laughs> so protons, each one proton is one positive charge, okay? So typically, an atom has as many protons in its nucleus as it has electrons. I'm just orbiting around it. Yes, I know. You know. Well, actually, the quantum probability cloud. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I am aware. Let's just say orbiting around it. So, some atoms give up an electron. If you lose one electron, you would have a positive charge. Right? One that does this a lot is sodium. So you end up, when, when sodium is given up an electron, it becomes Na+, plus, not just Na. Chlorine, on the other hand, will take an extra electron. Now it's got one more electron that has protons, and now it's Cl negative, not just Cl. So if you didn't know that before, you know it now. So, so just to make... Things will make you know everybody on the same level playing field. Okay. No goal. Okay. Now it's getting hot in here. When I came in here, it was like minus thirty. <laughs> it was like really cold in here. And now I'm starting to sweat like a bride back up here. With stimulation, and we'll talk about how this works, sodium ions, Na plus, are allowed inside the neuron. When enough of those happen, when enough of those positives rush in, right now it's negative. If enough bunch of positives rush in, it's going to get more positive, closer to zero, right? And that what happens then is we have what's called an action potential. And a change in one area leads to a change in another area of the neuron. So this, this change in, 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 in the charge across the cell membrane doesn't happen all at once. It happens in one place, and then in another place, and in another place. Okay. So, so far, questions? Does that make sense? Yeah, you're good? Okay. It's kind of chemical to electric, and I just think it's cool. I mean, that's, that, that's, just, that's just an editorial comment from me. I just think it's neat. There's no lightning. You always see when they zoom in on a brain in some TV show, there's little sparks. There's no sparks. Bugs the hell out of it. So, how do we end up with a negative charge to begin with, and how do we end up yeah, how do, we, how do we keep that negative charge? Well, that's done through something called a sodium-potassium pump. And that's just a graphical representation. It doesn't look like that at all. 
Okay, so here's the cell membrane here. That's outside the cell, this is inside the cell. There actually is a use for animated GIFs. <laughs> so, what this is done through a process called active transport. So, you know that typically what happens is that if a membrane is permeable, you're going to end up with an equal concentration of, of everything on both sides. This, this is not a permeable membrane. So, what we end up with is this little, this guy here, the sodium potassium pump, okay, it has to be constantly taking sodium from the inside and pumping it out and at the same time pulling in potassium. And as you can see, it pumps out three sodium ions for every two potassium ions it pulls in. Potassium is also positive, K+. plus. Um, this takes energy, right? Because, and you got to understand, any neuron, uh, if you look at per square micrometer of a cell membrane, uh, if you look, say, at the, the, the nodes of Ravier between the, you know, with the, uh, see it's myelin and myelin, and then there's the part of the axon that's exposed, per square millimeter of Sorry, millimeter, yeah, per square millimeter. They're huge, per square micrometer of cell membrane that's exposed that isn't myelinated at the nodes of Romier, there are between one and 2,000 sodium potassium pumps. So there isn't like there's just one. So these things are all over the place. And there's lots of them. You always gotta get the idea it's like four. There's way more. Oh my goodness. Um, so this is going to take a lot of energy running this thing, obviously. That's why you need so many mitochondria, this is why it's using so much of your oxygen, so much of your glucose. Why would we do it this way, evolutionary? Um, I've heard it said that this will lead to easier encoding, like the on and off, the zeros and because it's all zeros at once, binary, really. I don't know if I'd buy that. Does it lead to faster reactions? So the neuron, when it fires, fires more quickly. <coughs> I kind of like that idea. Because, like, think of the neuron, when it's at rest, it's actually not at rest, is it? It's working like hard to stay at negative 7. It's kind of like if you took a bow and drew the, whatever, the string on the bow. I don't know what it's called. Right. It's not ready to fire yet. It's ready to fire, but it's not firing. But if you let go, the arrow goes. Unlike if you have the arrow sitting there and just like this, try to make it fire. It's not going to fire quite as quick. So I kind of like that analogy so I think it makes some sense. So it might be the case that it lasts for a little bit faster reactions. So an action potential kind of ha happens when, when the stimulation, when stimulation causes uh, the pump to sort of stop. And sodium now gets in, and it's not pumped energy. Okay. And it's kind of reversed later. 
And this is why, for example, once it runs fired, it can't fire again for a little while because now that it's fired, it has to, now the sodium potassium pumps, all the zillion of them, have to go back into action and pump out all that sodium to get ready to fire again. So there's going to be a time, it's called the refractory period, when the, the neuron can't fire. Okay. Questions so far? Now, what happens here is that we have what are called excitatory and inhibitory postsynaptic potentials. I'm going to draw on the blackboard in a second, because the only way I can really do this properly is draw on the blackboard. But I'll explain this in a second. So what happens is, if we get a little bit of stimulation, a postsynaptic potential is just after the synapse. That's like the next dendrite, OK? What happens is it gets a little closer to zero. It gets a little more positive. It's still going to be minus. Like it might get minus 60 instead of minus 7. So that means it's getting a little, a little closer to zero, a little more likely for the neuron to fire. So that's going to be going from, say, negative 70, let's say, to negative 60. But it's only postsynaptic that's happening. That's not happening throughout the neuron. inhibitory postsynaptic potentials. It could be the case that the, 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 the neuron is becoming even less likely to fire. It's getting more negative. So it's going from negative <laughs> 70, perhaps up as high as, say, negative 120. So that's an inhibitory postsynaptic potential. So it can be excitatory. It could be inhibitory. Oops. Lost my plates here. <coughs> so what happens is temporal and spatial summation. And I'm going to draw this in just a second, but I just want to get those terms up there, and then I'll draw a picture on the blackboard, because I think it's going to make it a little easier to understand. So temporal and spatial summation. Pushing buttons up here now, I have no idea what's going on. 
infrastructure. I could turn off the thing. That's Same neuron. Here's another dendrite. And we'll have another one over here, a little closer. And one over here. Okay. Now, normally, what's happening is there's more sodium outside than inside, right? And in fact, there's three, and there's more potassium inside than outside, and it's actually at a three to two ratio. That's why it was going with three and two. So if we get three outside and two inside, we have a net negative charge, right? If it's more negative inside than outside, we say it's negative. Okay? So that's the first part. So normally what's happening is we have that floating around in here. And we'll put, we'll put two potassiums at each, in each dendrite, and it's going to be way more than that, obviously. But out here, each of those is going to be floating around three sodium ions. Here, there. So, now, so you see why it's going to be net negative because we have more positive outside than, than inside. Okay. So what's happening here is that when a neurotransmitter molecule, which we'll talk about later on in the course, when a neurotransmitter molecule binds to one of those... Oh, um, when it when a neurotransmitter molecule better than you laughing at the word binds because that's really weird. Uh, when a neurotransmitter molecule binds to a binding site, a receptor, it opens an ion channel, and it also charges the ion cannon for the Global Defense Initiative. A couple of you play Command and Conquer, but very few of you. Okay. That last part was a video game reference. That don't write the part about the ion cannon down. There's no ion cannon. That's my video game. Ion cannon charging. Okay. So here we go. We have these. There's a little. There's an ion channel. It's called. Neurotransmitter molecule binds to binding site and opens ion channel. What happens? This guy comes in. So now this sodium is gone from here into here. 
kind of cool. What we now have is an excitatory postsynaptic potential at that dendrite. That make sense? Because it's a little less or sorry, a little less negative. Because one positive ion is got in. So we call that an excitatory postsynaptic potential. It's excitatory because it's getting closer to the binary. It's getting closer, it's getting less negative. It's getting closer to zero. Make sense? Now, you say, how can we get an inhibitory one? Well, the world is not nearly as simple as just a bunch of sodiums floating around. Why, there are other, remember I said the other day, other elements. What if we have a chlorine ion here? Chlorine or negative? Now, you only tend to hear about, especially nature of psych, and that's not the fault of anybody teaching it, to make life easier for you. You really only hear about sodium ion channels, usually. But there are chlorine ion channels. And there are certain neurotransmitters that are inhibitory. And one of those is a GABA. Okay? And I know it sounds like I made that up. There's a neurotransmitter called GABA. G-A-B-A. It stands for gamma amino butyric acid. It stands for that, you know. So, a GABA molecule binding onto a GABA receptor will open a chlorine ion channel. So let's say that's what we have here. So this one here, we're going to just label this. This is going to be a GABA receptor. Chlorine now, some GABA molecule is bound to this. This much is in here. That's an inhibitory postsynaptic potential. It's inhibitory because it's a little more negative now. It's not negative 70, it's negative 75. With a lot of GABA, if we have a whole bunch of GABA receptors here, you'll see up to about negative 120, which is quite a change in the charge. You know, you're going almost twice as more negative, right? This whole time, remember though, the sodium potassium pump is working. Getting everything back to minus 70. Everything's getting back to minus 70. It's trying the whole time. So let's on this one here. We'll say this is a, let's make this a glutamate uh, receptor. Because okay. glutamate, GABA is, a, is the most uh, common inhibitory neurotransmitter in your brain, and glutamate is the most common excitatory neurotransmitter in your brain. So, let's call it GABA and glutamate. Which should tell you, by the way, that the most ex common excitatory neurotransmitter in your brain is glutamate, and monosodium glutamate is a simple salt of sodium and glutamate. That monosodium glutamate is no more harmful than you what do you do in table salt? You're not allergic to MSG. Nobody is. If you were, you'd be allergic to your own freaking brain. But my, my homeopath... Okay, there's your first problem. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for my son one day at school, picking him up and 
last year, do you remember there was a flu epidemic last year? They were two years ago, and they well, a lot of flu shots and beat it down. You know? Two parrots arguing with the flu shot or discussing it. I'm not sure if I should get a flu shot. And I'm sort of thinking, please get one herd immunity. All it does is save lives. Well, you know, I was talking to my homeopath, and she said, I looked at her and I said, what's your astrologer set? <laughs> she had no idea. She thought I was like, she was like thinking, I don't know what my astrologer said. Huh? <laughs> the level of stupid in the world is unreal sometimes. Um, anyway, I'm not saying you should eat handfuls of MSG. That's a bad idea. Just like you shouldn't do that with table salt. You know, what the, you know what the lethal dose of, of, of uh, MSG is in the average size human? It's about a kilo at once, <laughs> which is actually uh, not as bad as a table salt. So I'm just saying, MSG is delicious. It leads to umami, which is the taste of awesome. <laughs> okay. So what's happening here? Glutamate receptor opens up, sodium rushes in. GABA receptor opens up, chlorine rushes in. But these receptors are all over the place, and those pumps are everywhere. So there's going to have to be a lot more than just one receptor that stimulates that neuron the fire, isn't it? There's going to have to be lots. Now, how would you overwhelm a pump? Just think about this in terms, seriously, think about it in terms of, let's say your basement's ever flooded. You ever had that happen to you? Your basement flood? It's sad. You ever watch your dryer float by? <laughs> I've done that. Back in Newfoundland. Hey, look, there goes the dryer. Oh, good, it's still plugged in. That's great. <laughs> I remember uh, Isabel, my wife, she said to me, it's, yeah, I, I, looked over, I was looking at the basement and said, it's really close to the electrical panel. And she said, what's that mean? I said, it means pack a bag and run. The house is going to explode. <laughs> Greatest sound you can ever hear is the ice jam breaking in the, in the storm drain. <laughs> and then insurance, free stuff. <laughs> First thing you think, if you got that happening as a pro tip, I'm not saying you can't do this because it's illegal, but it's just an idea. If you need extra things. <laughs> oh, well, we need a new, a new Blu-ray player. Let's take the old one and just shove it in the basement in the water. Insurance guy, what's that doing there? Oh, we stole them down there. <laughs> I'm not saying you should. I'm not saying I did. I'm saying that people, my dad told me to do that. <laughs> Oh, what should I do? House is flooding. Throw shit in the, in the water. <laughs> you an idiot? So my brother's car was on fire. My dad said, well, pour gasoline on it. You want to be total loss. <laughs> I missed that. So temporal sum, and you again, remember, you try to overwhelm a pump. You try to overwhelm the pump. Well, there's going to be more than one glutamate receptor. Spatial summation. Oh, look at this. Aha. <laughs> Spatial summation, a whole bunch of sodiums rushing in roughly the same place. You'd have more than one glutamate receptor. It would be, you know, literally thousands of them. Let's get thousands of, of, of sodium ions rushing in at the same, in the same place. In the same place. That's going to make it hard for those pumps right there to work.
And eventually, like I said, eventually they give up. Now, temporal summation, they also, this also has to happen roughly at the same time. So it doesn't have to be, for example, all right here on this dendrite. But if it's on all these dendrites all at the same time, all the pumps can't keep up. Now, the best thing you have is a case where they're right beside each other, and it's happening at the same time, spatial and temporal summation. It's more likely that you're going to get fire. So this is how stuff is integrated. What happens is we get more than one source of information. We've got, if this transmitter being released to all those dendrites, we've got, in this case, at least four synapses. And remember the uh, Purkinje cell that, had, that looked like it had a great big like, afro of, of dendrites? Afro-dendrites. That's a name for a band. Um, and they can have like 10,000 synapses. Right? So think about how 10,000 things could be basically voting. In essence, what integration is, what summation is, is it's, is it's, is it's uh, synapses voting if the neuron should fire or not. And they vote by releasing transmitter and then Sodium, typically for excitatory synapses, uh, transmitters, sodium. Basically, voting do I fire or not? And if enough of them say yes in roughly the same place in the same time, the pumps all shut down in one area. And then, so if it shuts down here, and then there's all this sodium in here, right? Now the pumps here all get overwhelmed. Right? And all of these come down You have to draw onto the wall, I don't want to do that. There's your axon, there's your axon there. It's the worst, like, drawing of a hand ever. <laughs> now trace your hand, cut it out, and look, children, it's a turkey. <laughs> so, look at a turkey at all. We all did that craft, right? Around Thanksgiving, and I remember looking at it, Greg, too, going, this is just, this is looking at turkey, it looks like my hand. <laughs> but I don't see that well, so I might have just missed the whole thing. <laughs> For all I know, you're supposed to actually just draw a turkey. I'm like, well, it's supposed to raise your hand, I think. <laughs> yeah, I was the annoying kid in class going, can't we do something hard? So down here, this is actually working out okay. We have what's called the axon hillock. That's the start of the axon. Okay. And there are many voltage-sensitive channels there. What, that, what I'm saying is it's, a, it's detecting <coughs> the change in voltage. Right? 
channels, they're going to detect if the voltage has changed. Yeah, it's, it's just getting so warm in here. It's freezing in here before. So, and again, this is on the order of thousands of these channels, okay? <coughs> Oops, do it again. For, for basically for the cell to fire for what we call depolarization is you're going to need the, ch the charge of going from around negative 70 to negative 50 so it's not a huge change you might think it has to be a positive no so it's going to be all of these things coming in together, all of these sodium ions, and let's pretend, yeah, to make this fire, it's going to have to be sodium. So all these sodium ions, they all get down here. They're all going to get down here by the axon here, like at roughly the same time. That's because of temporal summation. And the spatial summation is they're more likely to have basically made pumps shut off in a certain part of the dendrite when they've all happened in the same place. Now these voltage sensitive channels, when they detect a change to about negative 50 typically, they just open up and sodium goes in like crazy. But you see the whole time, the sodium potassium pumps are fighting back, trying to make this thing not fire. But eventually when it gets, it's about negative 50, it detects this change, it opens up, it's a gated ion channel, so it opens it up, up the gate, and all this sodium just rushes in like crazy, and the, the cell now fires. That decision is made right about at the axon hillock. For the longest time we thought it was made right at the axon hillock, it can also be made uh, in the axon, a little bit past the axon hillock. That's kind of new stuff. So what I'm saying here is that not all the graded potentials are equal. What do I mean by that? A graded potential is excitatory or inhibitory postsynaptic potential, or um, even along somewhere along the dendrite, not just postsynaptically for the run. You can get a really strong <coughs> um, excitatory potential right around here, let's say, but if it's not happening anywhere else, it doesn't matter. You could also get a whole bunch of that seem like weak ones, but all happening at the same time, they could make the cell phone. So you can't look at it and say that they're all equal. That if we have enough postsynaptic um, 
excitatory potentials. We're going to get firing. They have to be enough at the same time and enough in the same place. And this is actually all modeled uh, through a bunch of, again, through, through calculus using differential equations. <coughs> if you want to know more about that, go to graduate school and take biophysics. It's, it's pretty cool stuff, but it's really pretty, it's pretty mathy. Questions about this? Does this make sense? How this is working? And what happens? You got to understand that if you were to measure the, if you went across this axon, uh, not the axon, if you went across the cell body, and you were measuring, you were measuring the uh, voltage. It'll be like this, right around negative 70 because resting potential. It might hit around negative 50, and then it just does this. And, uh, I should look that up. And then it goes back down. And see, during all this time, it can't fire. And then it gets back to right around negative 70. Now, you could have a case with the inhibitory postsynaptic potential, inhibitory uh, synapse. So here we've got a, a, a GABA receptor. You could end up with something like this. And again, with the neurons going to try to get back here. All right. Any questions about that? All right. That's a pretty reasonable place to stop, actually. So. Yeah, two minutes early, you know what was cheated at the tuition? No? Alright, thanks guys.
you do you got to tell me because i'm reserving that right giving up all the other ones including uh, mash it up any way you want okay um also of course give me attribution if you want to get a hold of me my email address is dave.broadbeck b-r-o-d-b-e-c-k at algomau.ca my website is people.auc.ca slash broadback slash blog uh, most of the music uh, all the music's pod safe and most of it comes from garageband.com or the pod safe music network see you next time